0: and what that union will produce, what it does produce, and what it will produce. So we'll be in Romans chapter number 8, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through verse number 4. As I was getting everything ready for this evening, um, most of the commentators that I read after... And, which I'd heard some before, they all talk about Romans chapter 8 being the the pinnacle of the New Testament. Um, I think Romans chapter number 8, other than maybe some verses, uh, Romans chapter number 8 is probably the most well-known chapter in the New Testament. If you, if you were to say to somebody, if they had to pick a chapter, a lot of times that's the one they'll go to. Um, But, what we understand is that chapter number 8 is a continuation of what Paul has been saying through the rest of the book. It's not just random chapters, but Paul is writing a letter and it's the continuation of what what he has said. Uh, After last week, we could have the tendency to see that we will be under sin for the rest of our lives and that take away all of the joy that we have that take away all of the motivation that we have and that wasn't Paul's that wasn't Paul's intentions and that's one of the reasons he leads into chapter number 8 in the way that he does um, i heard a story one time about a certain incidents that that almost goes along with with this in particular, there was a... Uh, said that there was a man that had some canaries in his house. He had them in a cage and he enjoyed listening to them sing. Well, having had birds when we were younger, I, I understood some of, some of what was going on, but it talked about the man deciding to, instead of actually taking the, the thing out of the bottom of the cage and cleaning it, He would take it out and just vacuum everything up. So he opens the door to the cage, and he puts the vacuum cleaner in there, and he starts to vacuum up all the the random bird seed and and everything. And he ended up turning the nozzle the wrong direction and in went the Canary. So he turns off the vacuum real quick, and... He opens back when, and this was the story that I had read, it was back whenever the vacuum cleaner still had bags. They weren't just the bag, they weren't the bagless ones. They still had the bags that I remember when I was a kid. But he gets in there, he opens up the bag. The bird's still alive, everything's fine. He puts the bird back in the cage, but over the next couple of days, he noticed that the singing wasn't quite the same. When he would go up and he would see that bird specifically, it would just sit there staring and not singing probably because it had been through a pretty traumatic experience for a bird but it kind of reminded me what paul has just got done saying paul's gone through and he's saying you're going to do the things that you want to do you're not going to do the things that you don't want to do you are going to do and you're going to carry this around with you till you die so he goes he gives all this news And we see it, and if we don't continue on through what he says, we can have the tendency to become defeated. Because it is defeating knowing that we will carry around with us a body of death for the rest of our lives. But in verse number 1 of chapter number 8, Paul starts, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus and notice all of the ends in this section of scripture it says, those which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit and Paul will he will repeat that same modifying sentence there in chapter in verse number four verse number two he says for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free "...from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh." "...that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit." And there he repeats what he said in verse number 1. So Paul takes this first section of chapter number 8 right after having dealt with him being a wretched man, him carrying around a body of death, him thanking God through Christ Jesus our Lord... For the grace to get through those things, he says in chapter number 7, verse 25, toward the end of that verse, so then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And we see these things mentioned again in this beginning section of chapter number 8. But there's, there's some specific things that Paul points out in each one of these verses that can help us understand his thought process, where he's going with this. And we know that he's going to continue to talk about the spiritual life, the life that the Spirit works in us. We talks about being led by the Spirit. He talks about the Spirit interceding for us. The Spirit when we don't know what to say, the Spirit speaking those things for us. And then he goes on and he explains our glorification. So he's ended the chapter number seven talking about us having to deal with sin for the rest of our lives. And he's going to end chapter number 8 talking about the anticipation that we have of being glorified. Of not having to deal with any of these things anymore. But the first thing that we see in this section of scripture is we see the legal implication of sin. Or the verdict for sin. What does Paul say in verse number 1? He says, there is therefore... Why? Therefore... Because of the law of God. He's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So we see that this condemnation that was brought by sin, and that's coming back from chapter number 5, this condemnation that's been brought by sin, he said this gone. There is no more condemnation even though you are carrying around this body of death, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. And specifically, he points to a group of people who experience this no condemnation. It isn't a no condemnation that's a blanket over everybody, but it's a no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It's only to those that are in Christ Jesus. If we are still in Adam which is what our question tonight talked about. If we are still in Adam, if we're still trusting ourselves, if we have not looked at the reconciliation that Christ made, if we have not looked at Christ and saw Christ crucified for us, if we've not put our trust in that crucifixion, in that payment being for us, then we are still in Adam. And in Adam, we are now under condemnation. But if we have put our trust in Christ, we have by faith been moved from Adam into Christ. And we even looked at some of that this morning in Ephesians. The Bible said that it was by grace through faith and that was all a gift of God, not of works lest we should boast. So if we have been moved from Adam into Christ, it was by grace that God did that. And it was through faith that we were able to obtain that being in Christ. And if we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And there's now no condemnation. That means today there's no condemnation. Tomorrow there's no condemnation. Two weeks from now there's no condemnation. It's now. It's present. That word now, it's a present tense verb. There's now no condemnation. Just as Paul said, Paul uses that same word. He said, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. If we're breathing, that salvation is available to us. That gospel call is to us. There's not, there's not a time in our life when we can desire to get saved and can't. Because God has said it's available to us to us. We understand, we do understand that it does take the drawing of God lest we continue in our foolishness like we saw this morning. But if we have seen ourselves in Christ, today now there is no condemnation. So if we understand who this is applying to, who this union is with, this union with Christ, how do we get in Christ? How can we be in Christ? If you, if you have a second, and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 30. I want to make sure everybody sees this with me. Because this, this, this truth in this first chapter of Corinthians, I'd never seen before. But it tells us exactly how we get into Christ. In verse number 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Actually, let's start in verse number 26. He said, for, for ye seeing your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And again, Paul Paul is saying that God has chosen these things so that men can't look at themselves and say, I did it. So that none of us can look at ourselves and say that I did it. God has chosen what the world sees and what the unregenerate man sees as foolishness To confound them. The preaching of Christ is foolishness. That we trust in a man who died on a tree is foolishness to the world. But that's the reason that God chose these things. But in verse number 30, we can see how we obtain union in Christ. It says, but of him. Who? Who is he talking about? But of him. If we look back, we can see. All of these things hath God chosen, yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught the things which are. So but of him, but of who? But of God, are ye in Christ Jesus. So we are in Christ by God. And what does Paul tell us? How does this happen? The grace of God, through the faith that God has given, is how we're saved. Who God, who of God, is made unto wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, according that, according as it is written, he that glorieth let him glory in the Lord, and what things do we see that resonate from this morning? It's but of God, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom. So if we're going to have any wisdom, it's going to come from being in Christ. And righteousness, if we're going to have any righteousness, it's going to come from being in Christ because it's Christ's wisdom and Christ's righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So everything that Paul has talked about in the book of Romans from chapter number 1 all the way up to chapter number 8, it's all found in Christ. And that's the reason that there is therefore now no condemnation To them which are in Christ Jesus. Because that is how God has decided that things are going to happen. And it's all of God. So if God is the one who is condemning those in Adam, then only God can bring out of condemnation those that are put into Christ. And that's the reason that there is now no condemnation. Real quickly, if we even look down at verse number 3, we we see some of these phrases kind of linked together. Toward the end of verse number 3, he said, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So there is now no condemnation. To those that are in Christ Jesus, because Christ was condemned in the flesh for them. That condemnation, it had to be levied out. God had to be a just God. He couldn't just let sin go. He couldn't just. God is a God of love, and He is a God of mercy, and He is a God of forgiveness, but He is a God of justice. It would be unjust for a judge to let a murderer go just because he's loving and forgiving. And we've murdered our brethren by our hatred. It would be unjust for God to let a th- for a judge to let a thief go, and we have stolen even our own breath from God by not giving Him glory for who and what He's done. It would be unjust so that the crime had to be paid for. And that crime was paid for, again, looking at verse number 3, in God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin. So he came in sinful flesh for sin to condemn sin in the flesh. And that's the reason that there's no condemnation. So Paul brings in this legal implication, this legal verdict, and he explains to us why there is no condemnation, to whom there is no condemnation, and how we get into this realm of there not being any condemnation. And this will point us back to chapter number 7, As we continue, so not only do we see the legal implication in verse number one, but in verse number two we see the practical implication. So what does this? What happens? What is this design? Verse number two, for the law of the spirit of life, where in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death the spirit has made us free this this wretched man that we that we sometimes will bow to this sinful nature that we will sometimes bow to that we will sometimes fulfill the law of sin we've been set free from that and we remember in chapter number 6 Paul talking about being set free from sin But not only is the fact that we've been set free from sin, but the Spirit gives us the power to live a life that has been set free of sin. It's not even in us to live a life free of sin, but it's the Spirit who empowers us. He says the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and he he parallels that with the law of sin and death. So we have the law and the law, which is a principle for which we understand from last week, the law of the Spirit and the law of sin. The law of the Spirit brings life. The law of sin brings death. And we understand all of those things. But what Paul is making sure that we grasp in verse number 2 is that this working of the Spirit, it's the result of the no condemnation, not the basis of the no condemnation. Me and Lindsay were talking right before we left the house. And she made the statement. She said, I'm sleepy. And she went on to explain herself. And we see in verse number 2, For, or because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. So Paul's explaining. He's saying that what happened was there's no condemnation so that we've been made free. And that word for it can mean a couple different things. Again, if if I took the example of Lindsay talking, she said, I'm sleepy because I only was able to sleep three hours last night. That's a result. Her being sleepy is a result of only sleeping three hours. She could say, I'm having a hard time staying awake. Because I'm sleepy. See, there's a, there's a little bit of a difference in the reasoning behind that. One is a reason for being sleepy. One is an evidence of being sleepy. And what Paul is pointing out to us is that this spiritual life, that, and again, he's referencing back to chapter number 7 to make sure that we understand what he has said. And he does this constantly through the book of Romans. He goes back and forth to clarify what he's just said. He does it over and over. But he's saying that the Spirit in us is giving us power to live a life of the Spirit because of our being in Christ, because of our no condemnation. The practical side of this is that because Christ has justified us, we can see the evidence that Christ is sanctifying us. We don't have to live a sanctified life in order to remain in the justification of Christ. We don't have to do anything to remain right before God. But that rightness before God is producing in us that sanctification. And Paul will continue to clarify what he's saying. So the Spirit has made us free, but just like he gave that caveat in verse number 1, that those who are now under no condemnation are those which are in Christ Jesus. The ones who have been given the power are those same exact people. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So it's that same union with Christ. Again, if we looked back at 1 Corinthians Chapter number 1 and verse number 30, what did Paul say? He said exactly that. He said, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. We have that sanctification by being in Christ Jesus. We have that power given to us through the Spirit because we are in Christ Jesus. And we are in Christ Jesus for the exact same reason that we looked at in verse number 1. We are in Christ Jesus being sanctified, being made like Christ in the same exact way that we are justified. Again, Paul is making sure that we understand that it's not works that we're producing. The practical implication of our justification is our sanctification. Being in Christ means there is a difference of location, but it also means there's a difference of your condition. You're not going to remain the same being in Christ that you were in Adam. It it just can't happen. The two don't go together. So we see the legal implication produces a practical implication. And just to make sure that Paul teaches us exactly what he's trying to say, he shows us the divine initiator. The initiation of this sanctification practically in our lives is the same initiator as the legal. The sanctification is the same initiator as the justification. Our looking like Christ is initiated by the same thing that put us in Christ. And we see that in verse number 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So we see that the law was weak. Why was the law weak? It was only weak for one reason. And Paul tells us that reason. He says the law was weak through the flesh. It was was us. We were the ones who were the problem. We were the ones that couldn't obtain justification. We were the ones that can't live like Christ because the flesh is weak. Even Christ, when he was talking to the disciples... When they said that they were sleeping and couldn't pray, he said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're always the problem. And Paul's calling our attention back to what he's already said. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw that the law could not justify. We cannot be saved by the law. We can live the rest of our lives and never sin Not even once. I can live from today and never sin again for the rest of my life. But even if I did that, that can't justify me. Because I not only have to live a sinful life, a sinless life, the entirety of my life, and I've already messed that up for 31 years. But even if from day one, the day that I came into the world, if I had lived a sinless life from then onward... I still could not gain justification through the law because the flesh was too weak to pay for the nature. And that's why Christ did what he did. Christ came. He died for our sin, but he lived for our righteousness. That's 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 the one aspect that we have to remember in terms of our salvation. The imputation of Christ isn't about the payment of sin it's about the transfer of righteousness we before God have by the death of Christ been atoned for brought us back to the level with God but God would have seen us as sinful creatures still we had to have something else done and that was to be placed on us the righteousness of Christ the law could not do both of those things. It could not do those things. In no way, shape, or form could the law have paid for sin and given us righteousness. And it could not have done those things because we could not have done those things. And we saw that. Chapters 4 and chapter number 5. Chapter number 6 and chapter number 7. The law could not sanctify us. We saw that God did save us. He did draw us. He did bring us out of Adam but in chapter number 6 and chapter number 7 Paul's been talking about living like Christ and the law couldn't even do that and we've seen that over the past couple of weeks. The law all that it does in the flesh is it strengthens sin when we attempt to live a sanctified life, when we attempt to make ourselves like Christ through works sin becomes more powerful. And and I know we used an example last week. That's why you see people who seemingly are the most self-righteous, godly people on the planet constantly falling into sin. Because when you try and make your standing before God based off of your living yourself, keeping the law, sin is the Bible says, is waiting at the door. Sin's waiting there because sin knows that your flesh is weak. You may have forgotten that your flesh is weak, but sin remembers that your flesh is weak. And that's why Paul says what he does in verse number 3. And again, looking at the verse in 1 Corinthians 30, all of these things had to happen by being in Christ. Verse number 3, we'll read it again. For what the law could not do... It could not justify... It could not sanctify... It could not put us in Christ... It could not make us like Christ... It could not pay for our sin... It could not give us righteousness... In that it was weak through the flesh... Because of us... It was our fault... And because of that... God... Sending His own Son... In the likeness of sinful flesh... God didn't send Him in sinful flesh... He sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. He took on our nature, but the nature was... He was sinless. It took God to satisfy God. He didn't take on sinful, a sinful flesh. He didn't put on what we wear every day in the sense that it was sinful. But he took on the likeness of us that he could pay the debt for us. It says that he made in the likeness of sinful flesh... And he did this so that for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So again, he's saying he did all this so that he could, he could be condemned for sin in the flesh that had no sin. We were going to be condemned for sin in the flesh that had sin. That's where we stand in Adam. We stand under the condemnation of God. But because Christ was condemned in flesh like us that had no sin for our sin, we are able to be in Him standing uncondemned before God. Because when God sees Christ, He sees purity. Sin always gets a guilty verdict. But if we are in Christ, He took that verdict Himself. That's the reason He had to be made like in the likeness of sinful flesh. The flesh was too weak. And when we see that the flesh is too weak, Paul points us back to the same place that he has constantly pointed us back to in every single chapter that we have gone through in the book of Romans. He points us back to the gospel. He's saying God initiated this. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh so that sin could be condemned in his flesh. That's the gospel. Christ took our sin. All we do is trust that. And it's applied to us. It's that simple. And Paul is saying, he said, stop Stop, don't even think about trying to fulfill the law in your justification or your sanctification because your flesh is weak. But Christ isn't weak. Christ was strong enough to carry all of what our flesh could not carry. And he did. He did all of that. So not only verse number 3, we see the initiator. But in verse number 4, Paul concludes the section that we are concentrating on tonight by showing us his application to all this. So we saw the verdict or the legal implication, the practical implication in verse number 2, the divine initiator in verse number 3, but in verse number 4 we see the apostles' application. So what does all this mean? We understand that Christ is the one who, who has given us the Spirit to deal with sin because the flesh is weak. We've seen that in the first three verses. At least I hope we have. Verse number four, he's going to explain the application of all of this. He says the reason that Christ did this, the reason that he came, was that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled In us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. What we need to get a hold of can be found in the third chapter of John. Why did God send his son? For God so loved the world. It was God's holy love that rescued us from God's holy wrath. And that's what he's been saying. He's saying we're not under condemnation. But if we remember back, even when we were talking about the Sabbath for the Christian, and the multiple times that we've looked at the law, We can understand how the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. And that that is our sanctification. And it draws our attention back to the book of Ephesians. God ordained that we would walk in good works. The reason he did what he did was so that we would walk in good works. And not... Even works to point to us, but works to point to Him because we are His workmanship. Again, these two books, they go together almost like they were inspired by the same Spirit to be written. The New Testament is fitting together like God's trying to say one thing to us. And that's He has performed justification and He will perform that sanctification. He's promised to do that. So the application of this holy love rescuing us from this holy wrath is that the law might be fulfilled in us, and there's that word again. So, in order that the law will be fulfilled in us, how is it fulfilled? In us through the Spirit. If we look over in Romans chapter number 13, chapter number 13, and look at verses 8 through verse number 10, Paul gives us the key that unlocks the understanding of how the law is fulfilled in us. And again, Paul in this letter is doing the same thing he does in every other letter. He's giving us the imperative. Before he gives us the indicative, he's saying, This is who you are, this is what it looks like. He does the same thing in Romans. All the way through chapter number 11, Paul is showing you who you are, why you are, where you are. He's showing you all these things. To chapter number 11, chapter number 12, and 13, he starts out showing us what it looks like. And if we look at verse number 8 through verse number 10, we can see what it looks like to have the law fulfilled in us through the Spirit. Owe no man anything but to love one another. So he says, don't owe anybody anything, but you do owe everybody something. And what you do owe them is love. For he that loveth another hath what? Fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying. Namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And verse number 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor Therefore, love is the, what? The fulfilling of the law. That is the application. We are put in Christ by God. We saw that, verse number one. We are put in Christ because of love. God sent his son. Verse number three, God sent his own son. We know that he sent him because he loved the world. That's what, he, that's what the scriptures tell us. We're put in Christ because of love. We are put in Christ so that his love, not our love, his love shows through us. And this is done by the power of the Spirit that we now walk they're in. This one understanding allows us to defeat sin, which if the sin is coming against the law, if sin is not meeting the standard of the law, what is law? The fulfilling of the law is love. Right? We saw that. We saw the fulfilling of the law is love. So what is sin? By default, sin is anything that, that isn't loving God or loving, the, loving our neighbor. Any other commandment, anything that doesn't show love toward God and love toward another is sin. And the reason that we can defeat sin is because we experience the forgiveness of sin. The reason that we can forgive sin... Is because our sin has been forgiven. And what does the scripture tell us over and over? Why do we love? Because Christ first loved us. We not only have the ability to love because Christ first loved us, but that first love that Christ had toward us is shown through us and is being fulfilled in us. Again, it's, it's the gospel. It's the gospel of an exchange. The Christian life is an exchanged life. We've been made exchanged from Adam to being exchanged into Christ. We brought Adam back for a refund and we got Christ. I know that's probably a lame illustration. But we've exchanged our sinful nature for nature of the Spirit. We've exchanged unlovingness for love. And that's what the law fulfilled in us looks like. Paul's whole point in this section of Scripture, he's saying that the flesh was weak. To fulfill the law, the flesh was weak. If we understand that the purpose of what God did to work in us and for those things to be worked out of us, if that was the reason he did it and love was his motive and the fulfilling of the law in us is love, who, whose love is fulfilling the law? is Christ's. Paul's point is, and again, he's calling us back, if we remember from chapter number 6, he gives us a picture of baptism. He's calling us back to remember that he's saying, come away, come back from all the laws that you're trying to meet whether it be circumcision dietary laws laws of the way that you dress that was what the Pharisees dealt with the Pharisees said you can't do this you can't eat on this day you have to wash your hands before you eat you have to wear these certain things you have to meet on this certain day you have to have these feasts during this certain time they brought all these laws and even Christ himself said that man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. In John chapter 5, he explains to them that God looks at the law through the lens of love. The law was meant to show how to love, to show the love of God. That's what Paul tells the Pharisees. Yet we do the same thing that the Pharisees did. And that's what even what Paul was doing. Paul was trying to fulfill a law in his members when that law was already in his mind. The love of God had changed Paul. And Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul was tired. We talked about that last week. He was tired because he was trying to fulfill the law of God in himself. But what he points out to us in verse number 4 is that the law is not being fulfilled in ourselves, it's being fulfilled in us. We're not producing that fulfillment. In essence, we're just getting out of the way and letting it do its job. If we want to look at a spiritual person, We can look at a loving person. If you see, and me and my wife have talked about this recently, if you see someone in Walmart that is dressed like what we think a Christian should dress like, and they are rude, and they are inconsiderate, and they are unloving, you don't think to yourself, oh, that must be a Christian. But if you see somebody who may not be dressed like... You think a Christian should dress, and that person is considerate and loving and kind. That's Christ. That's Christ lived out in us. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. The application to all of this is that we're not under condemnation. I'm not gonna, he's saying, I'm not going to condemn myself because God doesn't condemn me. You're not going to condemn me because God doesn't condemn me. And the application of that is that you're not going to tell me how I'm supposed to live because God is living through me. And I'm not going to tell you how you're supposed to live because God is living through you if you're in Christ. And doesn't that make the Bible make sense? 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. they They were fussing about... you shouldn't eat meat well you should be eating meat Paul what was his answer do what you want but don't be a stumbling block to your brother it was love that was it we fulfill the law of Christ rather we see the law of Christ being fulfilled in us when we love one another Going back to what we talked about this morning, if the church is the body of God, Christ is the head, we are the body. Scriptures are plain. My neighbor can't see Christ in the flesh. They did not live 2,000 years ago. They cannot see Christ in the flesh. But what they can see is the church of Christ. They can see members of the church of Christ Christ came because of love. Christ is drawing people to him through love. Even in chapter number 3, Paul said, the goodness of God or the love of God draws men to repentance. What Paul is telling us is that if we are going to live We need to live like Christ lived. If you're not under condemnation, then don't condemn somebody else. If you're not under condemnation, then don't condemn yourself. Because you can look and you can see the power of the Spirit of life fulfilling the law of God in you. Because Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, that law... Being in Him, it only makes sense to echo through you. That's where you see Christ in you. The hope of glory. We can look at ourselves and think, you know, so and so, they just irk me. I don't understand why I love them, but I do. I may not even want to be around them sometimes, but I love them. My kids, I love my kids, even though there are times I don't want to be around my kids. I love my wife. There are times I don't want to be around my wife, and it's probably likewise. But that love is because of a relationship. I love my kids because they are my kids. I love my wife because she is my wife. I know I married the right person. And if I ever forget, I go look at my marriage certificate and see, yep, it's the same person. It's the right one. If I ever wonder if I should love my kids, I can look at their birth certificate and see, Father, Jeffrey Perry, yep. Positionally, and that's what Paul's telling us. Positionally, you can know that God is working through you because of your love. Love. The world is going to see God working through you because of your love. And they're going to see the love of Christ displayed in you. That's reason to be happy. The Babylonians, whenever they had captured Israel, they said, they said, sing us a song. Sing us a song. They were taking them back to Babylon and they said, sing us a song. And they said, how are we going to sing because they were in bondage. Over and over we've seen that Christ has made us free. We can be happy. We can be joyful. We can enjoy being a follower of Christ. We can enjoy the things of God, not because they are things that we have to do, but because they are things being done in us. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be in your house Thank you, Lord, again for your word, for the things that you've given us in your word.